Hello, you're listening to Revillaging, the podcast that puts community at the heart of things. My name is Adele Jarrett-Carr, and in this episode, I'm chatting with Essie Richards. Essie is an unschooling parent and intersectional environmental activist, coordinator of The Pantry, an amazing project that makes food freely available to people experiencing food poverty in Cornwall, and a friend of mine. In this episode, she so generously shares her family's story of how they moved into unschooling and what that's meant for her personally. It's a conversation about shame, finding our way of being in the world, how we learn to heal and deal with conflicts and about meeting our own needs. It was so much fun recording with someone I'm just so comfortable with. We actually had this conversation back in December and I was all geared up to get it out first thing in January. Um, But then we went into lockdown and I was ill for a couple of weeks. And like so many of us, I just found January really intense. I needed to slow right down and just be where we were. And now I'm feeling the February energy of heading towards spring and all of that clearing out, shifting, creative movement that comes with that. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Uh, Before we get to it, just to remind you, you can support my work on Patreon. It's also a place where we can take a deeper dive into the ideas that come up here on the podcast. Essie is a friend of mine in the unschooling world here in Cornwall. We're real life friends and um, we see each other on a semi-regular basis because we sort of live a little bit of a distance, but we are both in Cornwall. And um, I was saying before we started recording that this is the first time on Revillaging that I've spoken to somebody who is currently in my life in a regular way, um, as opposed to a friend who I haven't seen for years or somebody who I'm interviewing because they've got like a book out or something. So it's just really cool talking to somebody about their life experience and somebody who we have some overlap with, but also you've got like your unique perspective, unique, unique experience that so much wisdom has come out of so much, um, so much love and compassion and joy. And I'm just really looking forward to digging into talking about like um, authenticity and community and lots of good stuff around um, around self-directedness with you. So uh, should we just get into things? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, your, your family life is what a lot of people would consider quite unusual. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if maybe that's that's a good place for us to to start. Like, where, what, what do things kind of look like for you guys? Which is, um, hmm. it's a bit unconventional, maybe. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had to sort of like do a flip round then because I was thinking, oh, is our life that unconventional? Um, but yeah, you're probably right compared to the mainstream. So we live in rural Cornwall. Um, my partner. Paul is freelance, so he works from home um, all the time. And we unschool as a family. So my children are 10 and 7. And yeah, our whole life really, I sort of think unschooling is a life philosophy rather than how we chose to educate. So our whole life is one about, I guess, curiosity chasing joy, learning, growing and understanding how to live together and overcome challenge. And it's kind of like, for us, I guess, or for me, certainly, it's about leaning as far into authenticity as is possible with as big as a compassionate heart as is also possible. Um, Yeah, so I guess that's probably slightly (laughs) Well, yeah, because a lot of people might not be familiar with what unschooling is. I know sometimes when I've chatted with people about it, I've realized that they just think it's another way of saying homeschooling or home educating, that um, they don't actually realize that the un is actually more about resistance to something and choosing something that is quite different. Um, How would you define unschooling? I mean, you kind of have started there. Yeah, yeah, so it's an interesting one. So yes, our unschooling for us is it's not an alternative to the school. Well, it is an alternative to the school system, 
but it's not taking what school does and bringing any of that into the home. It, it's an active, it's activism really in the sense that we've chosen to look at the school system fully in the face and see what is and what isn't working, largely what isn't in terms of relationships, concern, respect, or lack of all these things. And we've therefore chosen to actively bring those into our life, which has been a journey and is one that will probably continue on for many, many years. Mm. Um, And it is an act of resistance as well, I think, to what we've been sold as children who are now adults throughout our whole life. Um, And I I think that include, you know, that sort of um, umbrellas, colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, sexism, ableism, you know, just everything basically. And once you start to deconstruct that, that, you can see how it all intersects. Um, And that's been really interesting Mm. to be in person. Yeah, and this is a hugely, hugely personal journey for you. It's not that you sort of, I think for well, for most of us, when we're making parenting choices, it's not that we kind of intellectually come across an idea. Although for some people, that may be the way in. But for a lot of us, it's not that we intellectually come across an idea and think, well, from an academic point of view, this is how I'm going to live my life. But there is something a lot more instinct- instinctual and personal that happens to lead us there or circumstances just lead us there so um what has it been like for you what led you into unschooling mm, led your family into unschooling? yeah it's a really incredible um question actually I think it's really interesting I was, I was just reflecting on it before but um I think I I think I was born my personality is one that always was curious um and definitely my mum always um empowered that curiosity to a degree and I and I wasn't a child that could just be sold the story the, the narrative I don't understand particularly why but I just had that personality where I would always examine something and if instinctively intuitively it didn't feel right to me I would reject it which was quite difficult because um uh yeah I came from a family who did accept what the (laughs) narrative Mm -hmm. of society was um and um I think that made my life quite tricky as a child but I'm really pleased I've learned how to harness that energy. Um, and what that meant is that um, I run full on into things that I come across that that really appeal to me. So for me, like the Christian faith was one of those things. That, um, and uh, in my early sort of mid-20s, I ran into that journey, but then I ran up against it and began mm. to decondition that faith massively and I think that blueprint that deconditioning which was incredibly painful incredibly difficult and incredibly personal um but but allowed me to learn how to trust myself more than the people around me then allowed me to do that with the education system too and mainstream parenting and societal expectations around my children and my family um, so I think <laughs> in many words, that's what um, probably led us to unschooling and unschooling. It's almost like it's a philosophy that embraces that way of being in the world and that allows yeah. that and actually empowers and supports and cheers you on in that kind of way of living. Mm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love how you put that, how you have kind of drawn that thread all through your life, um, having a pit stop in your 20s and kind of moving on from there into where you are now. In in terms of what practically happens, um, so when your eldest, because your, your children, your eldest is going on 11, when he came of school age, sort of what happens there? Yeah, so... Um... Theo, my eldest, he, I have to say that his 
who he is, this child. He is, yeah, I've always felt he's a, a marker of authenticity. He's one of those people that doesn't need to say anything, doesn't question stuff with words, but he just quietly just is authenticity. And mm. um, you can be saying something really stupid or dumb and it just <laughs> falls off him and it just kind of comes back on you and you just go, oh, okay. <laughs> and so we've got this child and we have this sort of, idea of what life's going to look like which we hadn't really questioned much and it's my time to go back to work after having this beautiful year with my eldest child and it's time to go to nursery and it just didn't fit with us yeah yeah but I think a lot of mothers a lot of fathers they take their child to nursery and it's heartbreaking I can remember seeing so many parents crying but you kind of you feel like this is just part of it people say oh this is part of it it'll be okay they'll be fine and Mm. And it just really wasn't. I really missed him. I felt like this urge to be with him. I really loved my work. Um, And he just didn't really settle. And then he had a period where he did settle, but then he moved up into sort of the older children's room. And I just, I just really felt very uncomfortable with the kinds of disrespect of, of children that the carers who were all really lovely and they obviously had this vocation to be with the children but there was this just rhetoric of disrespect towards yeah. the children and I hadn't heard or learned anything about consent-based parenting or um, human rights for children or respectful parenting I hadn't come across any of these terms right then but just instinctively I just thought oh it feels wrong but I don't know how to challenge it And I was quite, um, at that time, I was a person who hadn't found the bones for assertiveness or challenging conflict. So it was very uncomfortable for me. But then with Theo started to respond to those things, that environment, and he just didn't want to go. And it got worse and worse and worse. And in the end, we just actually just we pulled him out of nursery. So when you say it wasn't respectful, because I think a lot of people would sort of wonder, but but how? Because, yeah, um, you know, when we hear words like everyone thinks, well, people generally think that they're treating children with respect and, you know, that, um, that it's a lot of things are consensual because children are going along with it. Um, I just wonder whether we need to unpack that a little bit because, think what you're talking about is probably a step further than um, than a lot of people might be thinking of yeah sure so for, for me and at this point it was instinctual I, I didn't mm. I didn't have the understanding so it was just noticing um you know stop crying come on be a big boy and we're talking about two three-year-olds mm. um and then I would often wait. I'd say I'd like to wait a little bit longer than they were comfortable with, which the um, the assistants would get a bit frustrated with me and make me feel like I was being a bit stupid or a bit overprotective. Yeah. Um, but I really felt like I wanted to settle him. Um, and what, during that time, I would see how they interacted with the children and there was definite favouritism of children. It was really subtle. Um, really subtle and other people might not notice it I'm really sensitive but those children noticed it and you can Mm. see they were slightly rejected and they could see they were slightly put down one time I'd taken Theo in a bit later he'd been to a hospital appointment and I lay down with him for his nap to settle him and a little boy from the other room so he must have been three when Theo was two came in to do a poo on the toilet and the assistants were like oh God, Ahmed, you take so long on that toilet and it's going to stink when you finish. Mm. And every part of me, I just thought, I don't want to leave my baby here. Like if this mm. is what they, they feel comfortable with when I'm here, what do they like when I'm not here? Yeah. And I just, I would see what they, Theo had gluten and dairy intolerances when um, he was younger. And at the end of the week, you'd get what they'd had for the menu. And every day it was baked potatoes and baked beans and they just couldn't be bothered Mm. you know and I know that sounds really silly but they'd be like oh there you go Theo shame you can't eat normal food and Mm. it was just 
really silly things. And a lot of the parents look to the assistants as experts and mm-hmm. they would say, oh, you know, you know, Johnny's being really naughty today, Pam. And Pam would say, come on, Johnny, you need to be really good for your mummy. But I just, I didn't have that sense. I've never had a sense of respect or authority, which yeah. got me into a lot of trouble as a child, as you can imagine. But I'm really pleased I have that because I, mm. I respected them as people, but I didn't have the sense of just because you're a nursery assistant, you don't deserve my respect. You have to earn that. So you, res- you respect them as um, as an equal, but not as somebody who is over absolutely over you. That power yeah. dynamic, you were quite yeah. ready to disrupt. Yeah, and they just was they just did not want to partner with me. So there's all these like words, aren't there? That like you hear from nurses in school that we want to partner with the parents. Mm. I was like, that's amazing. When I read that literature, it's amazing. I so want to do that. They did not want to partner with me. They did not want the information about Theo I wanted to share. They just wanted me to be gone so they could get on with their job, which they obviously thought they were doing the best that they could. And we found, you know, I mean, we spent a long time finding the best setting that we possibly could. Yeah, we were just shocked that we just couldn't find somewhere that we felt, you know, we didn't really care about anything. We just wanted him to be loved for and cared for in the way that we would while we weren't there. And we just couldn't, we just couldn't find that. And after the incident with the little boy on the toilet, what, actually what happened one day, I came, uh, I left early from work because I used to run from work to get there because I just couldn't wait to get to him. And the lady buzzed me in and I went down the corridor. As I came down the corridor, I mean, actually even just saying this now just makes me want to cry. I could hear somebody with a raised voice. And I was like, well, it's, you know, you have that funny feeling in your tummy. And I opened the door mm. and Theo was backed up against the wall, crouched down. And the teacher, the assistant was over him, pointing his fingers, her finger at him saying, you need to say sorry to me now. And Theo saw me and he was just like, mama. And I said, hi, like what's, what's happening here? And um, she said, Theo um, was in the, the eating room and he took something off this little boy and he wouldn't share it. And he wouldn't say sorry to me when it happened. And I just, and I just told Theo, because he was sobbing, and I just said, sweetheart, do you want to tell mama what happened? And he said, I want to say sorry to the little boy, but Anna wants me to say sorry to her. And I don't understand. Mm, yeah. And I just said to her, look, you know, he wants to say sorry, like, but I don't feel like he has to say sorry to you. And if I was, if it was now, I'd be like, look, this is, <laughs> I just I would handle it so different. But I was... Mm finding my own feet I was a new mama and yeah of course you know and we didn't go back after that I was just I just called the nursery and I just said we're not coming back but what I'd done is I said this is the reason we're not coming back I want to make a formal complaint and I'd like I'm going to report you to Ofsted and have you investigated because there's a culture of of bullying children in your mm-hmm. but I, I don't think they would have noticed that because it actually was one of the best nurseries and I think it's exactly- yeah this is what I mean when I was wanting you to talk about like what do you mean like what does partnering mean a lot of times when people say respecting children they sort of mean respecting them in terms of um, in this very narrow way yeah. you know um sort of it's almost a bare minimum of respect so even like the way that they were dealing with Theo's food intolerances, like they were respecting his um his food intolerances, doing the bare minimum by not giving him food that he was intolerant to, but not actually thinking of him as a full person. Like you wouldn't do that to any of those things that you've talked about. You wouldn't do to an adult. Yeah. And and also it's just not taking into consideration like anything about child development or trying to see anything from the perspective of the child no yeah oh I'm really sorry that that you guys went through that but it sounds like a really important part of your journey as well yeah I think it was essential it definitely was grueling um and painful for both my partner and I um we'd both been bullied at school so it was Mm -hmm. definitely very triggering for us and we were really aware that we didn't want for our stuff to kind of be coloring how we approach things. And so we actually, I think we 
we probably battled on for longer than we would have done if we hadn't been bullied because we thought we were maybe being oversensitive and, right. you know, so we overcompensate, but actually we were probably putting up with more than we should have done. Um, and then actually we had, we had a beautiful time where we had no nursery and, and my partner actually left his job and, and looked after Theo, mm. which is just really wonderful <laughs> it was wonderful <laughs> for me because I was doing an awesome project at work and I just knew he was safe and thriving yeah. and happy and I could come home and he was just like oh, mama and it was just beautiful and then we thought we'd found although we knew that we didn't believe in the school system we thought we'd found a school that we could compromise with and he would be yeah. safe and he could, there'd be a lot of play and he'd be it was a, in a community that um on paper it sounded good and we saw enough evidence of that for us to think yeah this could work and mm-hmm. yeah we gave it our best but we just saw Theo's spirit just being crushed and literally the light go out of his little eyes and we tried for sort of two years um to sort of work with them but that just again was just not on the table they didn't want to work with us and mm-hmm. um it was really distressing. Theo, there was a little boy who, for the two years that Theo was in a class with him, I think actually the, the little boy was probably just very distressed. He went to breakfast club and supper club and just wasn't getting probably his needs met. And as a result was uh, quite aggressive to, to Theo in a way um, that was unseen by the teachers. And because Theo wouldn't follow the protocol of telling the teacher every time it happened, they didn't have a written evidence base of that. And so therefore it didn't, it meant that they wouldn't deal with that as, a, as a, an issue. Um, and so they, they didn't fulfill their duty of care and um, in yeah. out of school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that doesn't even sound like the bare minimum in terms of what Ofsted normally expects so that's sort of but again you you have a another thing where the language all sounds good yeah but then the reality is not fully embodying the language so and I feel like what unschoolers quite often are doing is that they're actually trying to make things align rather than just putting up with misalignments and saying that it's okay that we say this but we actually do this. It's okay that we say that we respect children and that we believe that they have human rights and um, and that we believe in in giving in giving them these things. But then in reality, it's actually we'll do that in the most minimal way inside of this little box, which then means that we're not actually doing the things that we're we're saying. Um, whereas outside of the of that system you have the freedom to actually say well I'm gonna I'm going to say what I mean and mean what I say which actually is authenticity I'm going to what I do is actually going to align with what I believe rather than just sort of pretend to do it or do it in a kind of a tick boxing sort of way thing yeah really I think that's exactly it relationship is the priority for Mm. us in our life and connection and that's not that's not the case in institutions they don't I mean they haven't got they see that as a luxury they don't have the capacity for that they're so pressed by government targets and systems that they just don't have the time for that and when we called them on that because both my partner and I we worked in um, organizations as managers so we knew how to call people on you know, procedures and policies. And we were like, yeah, you are following your policy and procedure, but it's not actually doing anything for my child. So how can we make that happen? They didn't want to go there. They didn't Mm. want to have that authentic conversation. They didn't want to do that work. And it wasn't until, you know, and I was spending hours in meetings with them, taking a distressed little boy into school, spending half an hour with him clinging to my Mm. ankle and, plying him off while he went to school, spending meetings with the teachers, spending three hours in the evening while he attacked us violently, processing everything he'd been through in the day. And then one day he just looked at me and he said, mummy, you're just not doing your job. You're not doing your job. And I was like, what's the job? And he said, 
to keep me safe, mummy, to keep me safe. And that was it. I was just like, <laughs> like we just called the story. Like he's just not coming. He's not coming back in. And if you need to know why, it's because you've not fulfilled your duty of care. And yeah, uh, that was that was it basically. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and from that, he has such a strong sense. Like he was just displaying there, such a strong sense of knowing what he needed, and also trusting that you would hear him to give that. Like he hadn't given up on you hearing hearing him you know otherwise he would have just not bothered to to say anything you know a lot of kids get to a point where they just have to bite the bullet and get on with it and the ones who are still able to express that and keep saying this is what I need that that's it's amazing that they're able to to keep that spark and so it sounds like once you left you then had more space to just allow him to continue to grow into that and to recover and to become more of himself yeah yeah I mean it was it was a really hard time I mean it was a really beautiful time it was like a honeymoon where we just like it was like getting our baby back you know like preschool just playing creating and um hanging out just like it was like summer holidays for about six months, we just healed and restored. But during that time, he was processing a lot of stuff. So most nights he spent a couple of hours very distressed, processing really violent stuff. And at the time, we thought a lot of that was with the relationship with the little boy who'd been violent to him. Mm. And some of it was, but actually a lot of it was how he perceived the environment that he'd been in as quite violent. Yeah. And actually a couple of years later, when he could actually put words to that, he said to me, you know, mama, it was so confusing to see some kids be put on a naughty spot. The teacher had favorites and other kids who did naughty stuff wouldn't go on the naughty spot. And then Mm. they'd shout at us and if we'd make a mistake. And so I just never said anything. And just the little nuances of stuff. And And the first teacher he had in reception all the parents, including myself, we thought she was amazing. We thought she was so wonderful. We were so happy that we had her because mm. on the door, she was just this beautiful. And he said, but mama, that was so confusing because as kids, we were like, why do they all think that? And it made us feel like we had to like look, look after ourselves because we couldn't tell you that she really wasn't very nice to us. Oh gosh. Which made me just feel absolutely dreadful because we bought her this amazing gift and we were literally we'd all just talk about how great she was all the time mm-hmm. and he counted several times where she just there was one time where he was in the playground and they were playing some game and he'd just gone you know how really young kids they've heard a word and they say it and he shouted fuck <laughs> really what it meant <laughs> out and grabbed him and said pointed at him and said you must not say what did you say what did you say what did you say? And he was just like, oh, I said, I, and he said, I didn't, I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I said. Cause he couldn't really remember. She said, you do, you do. Where did you hear it? Where did you hear it? And he was just like, I don't know. I don't know. And he's crying. And then she took him inside and sat him across the table and said, now we'll sit here until you tell me what you said and where you heard it. And he was just in bits. And when, when I picked him up from school, I remember she came over to me and said, oh, there was a little incident in the playground and Theo swore. And I know you don't swear at home, but he got quite upset. But he's okay. <laughs> How did she know you don't swear at home? <laughs> right. Because we totally <laughs> swear at home. We're like liberal swearers. Um, but it's that kind of whole idea of a nice family, you know. Yeah. But his experience, his perception of what had happened you know, and then to, and then on the way home, I was like, oh, sweetheart, what happened? And he didn't tell me because he said he just did. She'd already told me what had happened and he thought I would believe her and he didn't have space to sort of, it was just, yeah. And, and to see how those things that we just see as just a normal culture, an acceptable culture, um, where there's favourites, where kids are sort of, told to do things or not do things they're not allowed to go to the toilet if they need a wee just all that sort of thing had felt violent to him and I think in comparison to the environment he had at home it felt violent it felt oppressive Mm -hmm. it it felt unsafe you know and unkind yeah and it took him a long time to heal from that a long time 
Yeah. And that situation, like with the teacher telling you this thing, therefore he felt like he couldn't tell you. It then sounds as if what was happening there was that although you had this really great, um, trusting, close-knit, free environment at home, you weren't really able to keep those things separate. School was affecting his relationship with you mm-hmm. and causing him to not be sure whether you would believe him if yeah. he's if he said what was what was happening. Gosh, how many of us remember a story like that? Like I remember I, I had something like that happen to me when I was, I think I was five or four or five. And I said, oh, shucks, which is not even. <laughs> and then I had to sit in the classroom copying something. And I remember I got bitten by an aunt, an aunt, and I was not an aunt, that would be terrible. But I got bitten by her. Because like, you know, in the tropics, lots of ants everywhere. I got bitten by an ant and I was crying about that to my preschool teacher. And um, and then I remember her making a big fuss about, about how, um, well, a big fuss about how I was making a big fuss. There's so many ridiculous things like that happen and it just taken as as normal. And it sounds like a huge projection of her on of what she was feeling, like kind of a panic of I need to do something because he said this awful thing. And, you know, it sounds like maybe she didn't really know she was ill-equipped to be able to deal with that situation. Yeah. So a lot of rushing happening there rather than slowing down and trying to see his perspective like at all. Yeah. I think we should, I was just listening to you talk then, I was thinking about it. I think the biggest thing was shame the shame yeah. that he was made to feel mm. on a daily basis. And if he wasn't made to feel it, because he was a really compliant kid, he just sort of shut up and just got on with it. And that's why they were like, there's no problem with Theo. He can't be getting bullied because he does all his work and he's very quiet. He'd be, you know, and I was like, well, yeah, but at home he's not. <laughs> but the shame he felt, even just seeing other kids being shamed, he just took that on and absorbed it. And he felt, and it was the shame, I think, that just really really crushed him and yeah I mean shame is so powerful it's so disempowering and it, it yeah I'm sure we've all even just saying the word shame can make you feel oh gosh mm. you know frozen in it yeah 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 and, and just not understanding as you said earlier something about the teachers being very ill-equipped to deal with situations and I think that's yeah. it. they're not trained to deal with conflict they're not trained to deal with children that maybe don't act in a kind of neurotypical kind of conventional way. They're mm. not trained to deal with anything other than sort of meeting their targets. And most of them set out with this real kind of desire to bring learning into children's life. And they just, they just don't have that capacity. But when we sat down with teachers just to talk to them and say, look, what can we do as the, as parents to help with this situation? Can we meet with the other family? Can we, what can we do? They were so closed and felt so criticized and just were so unable to, they didn't have any skill to deal with conflicts. And I'm, I don't think we were particularly skilled up at that time, but they, they just didn't have this. They couldn't, they didn't know how to do active listening, which is just yeah. like, you know, it's just like the first step to being able to create some change and all of these things, which were totally radically change the school system for better with active listening conflict resolution (laughs) um just having this kind of like having a space for them to be able to process their own big feelings when they were going on you know all this stuff it would be so helpful but yeah without that inner system that was just not a place where we Theo could thrive or we as a family could thrive. So, But all of that takes time, doesn't it? And time is something that the system is very short of because there are all of these targets for these many subjects that kids have got to learn. And, you know, there's just a lot of pressure on everybody who is in that system. So you can see that there's not really the space to develop those things. And it's also kind of, it puts the intellectual learning as the main goal, whereas what you're talking about as the main goal for you guys was the relational learning, relationship to self as well as to others. Yeah. Yeah, which wasn't isn't developed in the school system, not just for the students, but as you're saying, for the teachers as well, or, or even for the parents as well. Parents are not being supported with that either. 
Yeah. So you left and, um, well, you're mentioning conflict and this is probably a good place mm. to, to go with, with this. But how have you found that leaving school behind and not bringing school into your home, but choosing to unschool? So choosing to just learn through living. How have you found that that has affected or developed the way that um, you personally deal with conflict? Maybe how you all deal with conflict? Mm. Wow. Well, what it's done is it's given us space, exactly as you say. It's given us space to learn what I believe are the real skills that you need for life. (laughs) And I definitely did not have them. I was frightened of conflicts. I saw conflict as a sign of things going very badly wrong. I saw conflict as a warning sign that basically people were going to bail on you. You were going to be abandoned. And there was going to be a lot of hurt and pain to follow. And so I avoided conflict at all costs. (laughs) Um, And um, I think just reading lots of articles and lots of books around unschooling philosophy, I started to just hear it at the side lines all the time different things people mentioning conflict resolution and active listening and I think I just started to realize that this is a skill I'd really like to have um and before I could get to being able to acquire that skill I realized just how much of my life was full of fear and it was so full of fear it was never not full of fear. So I didn't really understand that it could be anything different. And I think actually what, as we embarked on sort of this unschooling life, what I didn't realize is I had to kind of like heal myself first in order to get to this life that I imagined we could have. And so it sort of led me into two years of therapy, doing um, some somatic experiencing therapy which is all about embodiment and feeling the feelings and being allowed letting allowing your body to release and heal those in the presence of somebody that can um give you empathy and compassion Mm. um and only when I'd cleared a lot of the fear could I then start to learn conflict and then I realized that actually conflict and authenticity are just their best mates really (laughs) and um that actually I want to be in life with people who accept there's going to be conflict and they're brave enough and courageous enough to work through that even if it's a bit painful a bit scary a bit anxiety making um that you've got each other's backs and that you'll find a way through Mm. See, when people talk about what do you need to do to prepare, like to home educate, you know, not talking about unschooling specifically, but um, before we even get onto that, what do you need to do to prepare to take responsibility, full responsibility, because everyone has responsibility for their children's education. But you hear like a lot of people talking about you need to you need to read the books, you know, um, listen to the podcast, go to the, the conferences. There's a lot of head stuff that you need to do. What I find really interesting about what you're saying is that the thing that really has helped you uh, move into this self-directed way of living for your family has been about dropping into your feelings and your body and that it's not just been about the head, although I'm sure that that's been involved as well because the school system is all about the mind. that, That whole academic world is completely about head knowledge and so it's really interesting um what we're talking about is bringing these things together rather than living a life that where everything is so separate yeah 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 I mean I think it's about trusting yourself we're not you know if you think about our generation we're a bit older than you but just talk about sort of us as parents yeah really from the get-go of being born we were sort of taught how to untrust ourselves. (laughs) So it was all about don't trust yourself. No, you don't need a wee right now. No, you don't feel like that. No, stop crying. 
um, no, this class would be good for you. Just stick with it for a bit longer. It was all about not trusting yourself, coming away from yourself. And then for some of us who experienced childhood trauma, that was even more of a push away from yourself. Um, So I read an amazing thing once that explained my experience so beautifully. And it said, I, I, when I was a child, I was thrown so far away from myself. It's taken me my whole life to get back to who I am. And that explains my journey so well. And for me, it's, you know, what I see in my children is my job almost or my role in their life has been to remove all the obstacles that stop them from trusting themselves. Mm. They know what they need and I just need to listen and support and do what I can as an adult who's got the resource and some of the power to, to provide for those needs. And a lot of that is about just listening and watching really. But I couldn't do that until I'd learned how to trust myself. And for some of us, that's a much bigger job than others. Um, for me, it was kind of like a full-time university degree for a while, I feel. Um, <laughs> and um, I feel like I can now, you know, I'm now at the beginning of that. Um, and that has totally equipped me to understand, you know, what their life's about. And it's really just about them trusting themselves and me saying, you can trust yourself. I don't even to say that they totally trust themselves but just yeah. empowering and building that up more and more. That is the thing, isn't it? Because it's not as if we've got to do this thing to empower children to do something. <laughs> we don't need to empower them to do any, anything. They are already doing these things. It's whether we are going to try to remove the power from them, the power that they already have, or whether we're going to, well, in a lot of ways, just hold ourselves back from imposing all of our own conditioning and other bullshit on them. I find that when I read parenting books now, and you may find this as well, whatever you're reading or listening to, that a lot of the time it's really not so much about my kids anymore, but it's really about trying to understand myself. It's about my own journey. Yeah. (laughs) Oh God, so much. I think, I think, I don't know when it was because you might remember more, but I had this total, it was like an epiphany revelation moment, <laughs> which I think my therapist had been moving me towards for like two years, but then I finally got it. And it was like, I just had no idea that I, ha- it's not that I had no idea, but I had no reference point or model to defer to, to refer to that if I met my own needs, that was going to be the best thing I could do with my children. I just didn't understand that at all. And when I suddenly, because I my whole life had been dedicated towards meeting their needs. And I thought, what better parent could I be if I just met their needs, just met their needs all the time? That's what I had to do. And even as an unschooling parent, I'd taken that up. I was like, this is what unschooling. And it was just now I can see I was just totally in their space <laughs> and I was essentially what I was doing is meeting my own needs by meeting their trying to meet my needs incorrectly by meeting their needs and it was just messy and just, just you know and then I suddenly realized well if I just really focus on meeting my own needs then I'm going to do a wonderful job of modeling this life of what it looks like when someone knows themselves, cares for themselves, knows what they need, sets boundaries, makes joy a priority, has a cup that's full to be able to give, knows when to rest. Like you're saying, rest mm. is this massive act of um, resistance and activism. Yeah. And I think I spoke to you about this. And when I had this revelation, I was so excited. And it was amazing because... For a while, I just hadn't felt quite as connected to Theo. And I just kept thinking, like, I just don't quite know how to meet his needs. I just can't quite get it right. I just know I'm not meeting his needs. I don't know what to do. Spit off. And then I had this revelation, hadn't said anything to the kids. And we went to the beach like the next day. And it was like he just instinctively, 
you know, and I'd done nothing at that point to manifest what that was going to look like, but I just, <laughs> something had shifted inside of me. And he was just like this free little child. He just kept running back to me and hugging me. And it was like, he was saying with his whole self, thank you, mama. Thank you, mummy. Now you know what your role is. And now you can just let me be me. And we can just all, you know, be in this together. And it was just so beautiful. And it's like now I know that I can focus on improving. Like, oh, what does Theo need from me in terms of communication? Well, actually, he needs me to back off quite a lot and give him lots of freedom and just like go for it. You don't need to be, mm. you know. And he definitely needs none of my rambling. <laughs> no, as you can see, I'm a massive verbal processor. That's not what he needs. That's not his, you know, he doesn't, he's like a man of few words. He likes to ask questions. He's a wonderful conversationalist, but he likes a quick answer. And so I've learned to kind of hold back a bit. And he likes me to be a lighthouse where I'm available, but he doesn't necessarily need me for much more than that. And yeah. It's just been a a wonderful starting point for me as a person. And now I understand how to release them and to have their best life, you know. How many of us are doing that where we are trying to self-actualize through our children and through kind of doing things that we think are good for them? And not just like in terms of thinking like with an unschooler where you're trying to think, what can I, what can I, what feast can I lay before them or whatever um or just home educators in general often do think in those kinds of of terms the busyness is about what we need and something not feeling right for us and why why is it that we struggle to let go why is it that we struggle to rest actually that doesn't just come out of nowhere it's not just because we're in a busy culture and that's what we're told to do quite often it's about what lies underneath feelings that we're afraid to feel and uh, that we're not ready to let ourselves go into because it's actually quite painful yeah. and destabilizing. Yeah. Mm. So mental health has been a lot of this journey for you, a lot of mm. figuring out what you need and what your children need, which actually is quite different from what you thought they needed. Yeah, they don't need you to organize organize their time. No. Yeah, and I don't even think I was really organizing their time so much. I definitely understood about giving freedom, but I was just preoccupied with giving them the best life they could possibly have. And that yeah. doesn't sound like it would be a bad thing. And it's not, as long as it's like enmeshed with you having the best life that you could live, you know, and, yeah. and just, re- you know, I definitely had released my picture of what their life would look like in the early days of unschooling. I'd read, you know, lay down your version of their life mm. and just watch what theirs is. And I love that. And I definitely done that, but I was still preoccupied with, with making that happen for them or just being a slave to their desires and their needs and not addressing mine at all, not even having a clue what they were, thinking mm. that was selfish. Yeah, I feel like we've got to talk about the Enneagram here. Yeah. <laughs> there's just yeah. so many things. I think because I'm just such an Enneagram geek, like there's just so many things. I'm just like, that's such a two thing. <laughs> yeah. We have uh, talked yeah. about it on previous episodes of Revillaging. Um particularly the last episode where Dr. Christina Cleveland was saying that she's a one. Um, but the Enneagram type is a typing system. It's a personality typing system, which is a, a diagram with nine points. And each point is a, um, a different personality type. And um, it's something that both of us are quite into and have found really helpful in terms of accepting ourselves. And um, you're you're a two on the Enneagram, which is yeah. archetypally the the helper, <laughs> the the person who um, often does find a lot of um, a lot of identity and and good stuff from helping from helping others and sort of needs to be needed. But um, how has that played out for you? Kind of discovering that about yourself, and um, what have you got from unpacking starting to unpack that 
Oh, it's been really good. I mean, I, I'll, I'll share with them because I, when Adele first saw me about the Enneagram, I'd already looked at the other, um, what's the other personality thing? that Myers-Briggs, yeah. yeah Myers-Briggs, which I'd found extraordinarily helpful, but it had only gone sort of to a certain point. So I was really, it was beautiful to read about introverts and realise I was an introvert. I suddenly didn't feel weird anymore. I was like, oh, thank God. And it was wonderful and that I was really highly sensitive and it was just like yes thank you and then the Enneagram just allowed me to go sort of like deeper but I thought I was a four originally which I really identified with and then when I did the test again I was a two and I was like oh no I don't want to be a two (laughs) and I said to Adele no I'm a two and she was like that's how often people really react and and then I went back to it (laughs) after a few days like an even better look at and I was like this is really helpful because it really, what I really like about it is it shows um, what it might look like when you're stressed out or you're out of balance or you're not addressing your needs and what kinds of it can look like when you're balanced or I don't know about the word balance, but when you're addressing your needs, you're getting the rest and nurture and support that you need. And yeah, it's integration. Integration. Yeah. And it really helped me just to embody. Yeah. I think I'd always rejected myself as like a helper type. I was like, oh God, it's so embarrassing. Like, you know, but now I'm like, no, I am. That's really beautiful. And it's really helped me to embrace just who I actually am instead of always preferring to be somebody that I'm not over a period of time. And and every now and then I just go back to it and read a bit more of it. And actually the, the thing that I've really I've started to delve into is, I haven't talked to you about this yet, is human design, which someone mm. talked to me about a year ago. And I was like, well, that sounds like that's working for you, but it's a little bit off the wall for me. Nice. <laughs> Funny how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> and now I you're like, oh. <laughs> and then the other day I was just sort of spending some quiet time in the morning and just really praying, which for me is just sort of being really open and just like having this relationship with what I would call God and just saying, just really show me like who I am and as what, who am I? Like, what do I need? And, and I just, it just dropped into sort of my consciousness. I remembered about human design again. I just, I didn't read what it was because I think that would have put me off a little bit, but I just looked suddenly into the sort of archetypes and I did my chart. And again, I was like, jaw droppingly like, ah, this is so brilliantly helpful and I was talking to Paul about it and I and he was like but isn't it like a horoscope where you can just read a horoscope and go yes that's me and you could say that (laughs) about each one of them and then I was talking to another friend I was saying I think it just doesn't actually really matter as long as it's helpful to you and you're not like I swear by it I live by it I you know this is the only way it can be but you take that information and it's helpful to you at that time and it can't be a bad a bad thing and it has just, it's just, I did one for my kids as well, actually, because you can do them for children. And again, I just found some really beautiful unschooly type tips in terms of mm. communication and just understanding them as a, they're both totally different types of me. And I, as Bella had been getting a bit older and definitely as Thea, I was so much more aware, wow, these guys, their brains operate really differently from me. And I I don't quite understand how to communicate with Theo, especially actually. And this just gave me some really beautiful pointers. And um, the woman that did the child charts are saying, yeah, actually, you know, homeschooling is a, is the most beautiful way when you've got children who are different sorts of types from you to give everybody the space they need to um, find out who they are, what their needs are and to have the space and freedom to explore that. So it's really sweet actually. Um, mm. Yeah, so I, I think all of these things are so so helpful just to, to finding out who you are. Yeah, I feel like so much of this stuff that we're talking about is how do we get to a place where we're able to just be with ourselves and mm. and be with others, mm. you know, and kind of looking sort of far wider than your family. I mean, how do you feel that all of this, all of these things are kind of becoming more self-directed, being able to trust yourself more? How has that impacted your 
wider relationships, the community outside of the one that you you live in? Yeah. With your family. Um well, I think this whole journey has allowed me to um come back to that curiosity I talked about earlier as a child, just like I feel more able to be curious about people. Um I think before I was quite untrusting of people and definitely steered away from certain types of people. But now I trust myself I mm. and understand and just have these sort of intrinsic boundaries. I just kind of know that I just, I can talk to anybody and I'll just, I'll know what to do if it isn't right, if it doesn't feel right, or I don't want to hang out with them anymore. anymore. Whereas before I'd have thought, well, I better stay clear of that person because they look tricky or, I won't know how to sort of remove myself or they might just Mm. try and get into my life and I won't know what to do. And so I just, I guess I feel more curious about people. I enjoy being with people more. Um, And I'm really much more secure in saying, okay, I'm going now because I've had enough of this. And (laughs) yeah, I won't be going to that because I don't like social, big social things. I'm more of a Whereas before I'd have been just like, oh God, it's because there's something wrong with me and it's really embarrassing and I'll just have to pretend I'm ill or something, you know? Mm. And so I guess, yeah, I just feel more comfortable being around people generally and being more comfortable not being when I don't need to be. Yeah, those two are so linked, the being able Mm. to be with people, but also being able to not be. And you've had to extract yourself from... Well, I was going to say from a few different communities, but that's kind of mixing up communities with institutions, really. Although I'm sure <laughs> we've all had times when we've moved out of communities as well. But I'm just thinking you've extracted yourselves from the institutions of school and church. And um, maybe there are other less formal communities that you've also had to take yourself out of. Um, and you feel that trusting yourself has been a part of being able to, to do that. Hundred percent, yeah. Uh, recently, actually, sort of about six months ago, I removed myself from a um, a movement that I was heavily involved with, and mm. um, um, I think before, if that had happened, there was conflict in the movement, and um, I think before, I just wouldn't have trusted myself. I'd have thought, oh, there's something wrong I'm doing here, and I would have over- overstayed and tried to make it work. And actually, I felt really comfortable in just just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm out of here and I don't need to do a big, long conflict resolution process with you because I can see actually, for me, there's things that are intrinsically um, wrong with this movement. And unless they change, I'm, I don't want a part of this. And that yeah. was kind of like a real milestone, I think, in my life. It didn't mean it wasn't painful or traumatic. It really was. But I felt that for me, integrity is really important. And I felt I managed to retain that integrity and communicate and um, do what was right for me. And I don't even know if it was the right thing, but it was what was right for me at that time. Um, Yeah. That's something I always appreciate about you, by the way, that I'm never in doubt about where things are with you. You're very clear on, you know, you're very happy to say, what you're feeling and what you're, or it feels this way anyway, that you're, (laughs) (laughs) that you're happy to, to be authentic and to say that I'm wondering whether there is a problem here. Whereas, you know, I, I have a strong sense of authenticity, but I'm still in the part of my journey where I'm learning to, I'm learning to be okay with that. I'm learning to, well, I'm a four. And when I found that out on the Enneagram, I had that total yuck (laughs) reaction to it as well, where I didn't think, oh, that's brilliant. I love that I'm like this really um, into my feelings, needing to be authentic in every space kind of person. (laughs) But it's a, there's a worry there. There's a huge fear of rejection there, which is something that I'm still working through and something I think that I'm probably going to be spending a lot of my life working through, which is a mix of childhood experiences and personality, which are actually things that are hugely linked anyway. Mm-hmm. But 
all of that stuff that you said about leaving that movement. I knew that when things have bubbled up between us, which have not been comfortable, that you've been very good at um, at saying, well, let's let's actually say see what is here and I'm just going to come out and just be vulnerable and lay out what this is feeling like for me, what I'm worried about, what's actually going on in my head, which has then been really freeing for me to realize, okay, this is a space where I can say what I'm feeling as well. I can be honest about where it is for me. So many of us are afraid to do that. You know, the world just does not look like that. We're very good at just moving away from people really quickly and um, and maybe not committing to people or separating from people when we need to. Yeah. And yeah, and those of the both of those things are very necessary processes. But what would you say something? Because that moving away from that movement is a very recent thing for you. What would you say? is something that has really helped, that really helped with um, processing the pain and trauma of leaving that community? Because I know it was an all-encompassing one for you or one that you were very involved in anyway. Yeah, I think... I think when I had Bella, um, I got into... um, this really supportive parenting thing called hand-in-hand parenting. And as part of that, they do something called listening partnerships where you have a partner. So say if you were my partner, you would hold space for me just to be able to process and talk and cry and scream, do whatever I needed to do um, and just work through those feelings. And I think that taught me a lot. So I did that intensively maybe twice a week with two listening partners for about um, maybe two years. And I think that sort of like trod out these neural pathways in my brain that made me realize how important for me as a person verbal processing is. And I know that's not the same for everyone. So my partner, Paul, that's not that's not what he needs at all. It took me a long time to realize that. I used to try and get him to verbal process and he's like, <laughs> well, I'm, li- leave me alone. <laughs> I'm listening <laughs> so- to you and I'm thinking that that sounds amazing to me. Like I love the sound <laughs> of that, but I can think of many people in my life who'd just be listening to that and thinking that sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah. So but for me, it was really wonderful. And that actually, so, you know, that having, um, I was really fortunate actually because I went through leaving the movement with a with a very very close friend who I had an established relationship with um it was a very trusting and open relationship and we both left at the same time so I think that really helped um and so when we had little wobbles afterwards and still now actually we have a little sort of blah, 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 blah. and then for both of us integrity and sort of love and compassion and thinking the best things are really important but also being able to have the space where we can let it all hang out is equally important where we're not mm-hmm. going to judge one another. And so that's really, really helped me. Um, yeah. So you I'm have a kind of a time. listening, you have a listening partnership with that friend who also left. It, it's not, it's not as structured as that, but I think it is a very informal one. Um, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've verbal process to you around Mm. it before it was as it was happening before it was happening after um and I would just say actually about what you were saying before about me being this kind of person that (laughs) will say stuff that's partly true but it's not entirely true um Mm. so I will do that with safe what I deem to be safe people (laughs) yeah um you're a safe person because I know that you're willing and committed to work things through and that you'll as Brené that saying that Brené Bound says you'll be willing to say what's my part what what story am I what does she say what's what's the story I'm telling myself yeah and I think if you're doing life with people who are saying what's the story I'm telling myself then you're on neutral grounds you're both taking responsibility for your part in this conflict that's happened all these wobbles that are happening and you're not going you you're both taking responsibility and so I was willing to go there with you because I knew that you were willing to do that um and I have a sense that this 
you know, I won't do that if someone, it's actually probably not a bad thing. No, it sounds very (laughs) wise. Pretty comprehensible. (laughs) But, um, and as I've got older, so I'm definitely perimenopausal now. And I definitely think there's something about seasons in your life, or maybe it's distance traveled, but I definitely have less time for people who aren't willing to be like that in my life. My circles have got smaller, but the people in my circles are flipping fantastic people, mostly women, really awesome, committed people willing to go there. So yeah, I think that's a part of that equation. And when I started out, I definitely, this was, you know, it was a scary thing for me. I was definitely, like you say, terrified of rejection. Mm. I used to spend a lot of my life energy thinking about what to say that the other person would like me to say. It's been exhausting. And um, (laughs) I started just taking footsteps, talking to people authentically. And I started off with the safest people. And the same with assertiveness, the same with conflict. And I think that's a really good way to kind of head in that direction. Start with yeah. safe people who will forgive you doing it really badly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my conversation with Essie Richards. Come chat over on my Patreon. I'll pop some questions there for reflection. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Adele JK in both places. And you can follow Essie Richards on Instagram. Uh, she handles the account for No Going Back Sundays, which organizes socially distanced protests for socially aware environmental campaigns. Um, the handle is at No Going Back Sundays. The show notes on my website um, at adelejarrettcar.com will have all of the links um, as well as and they'll also be in the podcast description um, if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe to Revillaging wherever you listen to your podcasts and drop a review see you next time